1: This podcast is sponsored by Markon, a local
2: family-owned real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades.
1: Everybody knows Markon, Adam, and it's because Markon signifies high-quality construction and making positive impacts in communities across the Lower Mainland. They actually have two super exciting projects right now. One in the booming community of Burquitlam. This is a signature 38-story tower called Elmwood with homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, fantastic stuff. And Hugh, another one of their projects that had the community abuzz, the real estate community in Port Moody. Yeah. Word on the street is a lot of agents bought at Hugh. You can learn
2: more about Marcon if you follow them on Instagram at Marcon Homes, or you can check them out on their website, marcon.ca, where you can register for
1: these projects and many others. This podcast is sponsored by 8X on the Park. Let's talk about a unique offering. Brand new homes, move-in ready in Yaletown. It's been a while since we've been able to say that. And Adam, that's what makes 8X on the Park so exciting. This landmark building has released its final three-bedroom homes with two parking and three parking with the Skyloft homes. Good news for the most discerning buyers who obsess over quality and high-end finishes.
2: These spacious homes were designed for daily luxury with Mila and Sub Zero appliances, AC and design features that set a new bar for downtown.
1: 8X on the Park is an iconic addition to the Vancouver skyline with 24-hour concierge, a beautiful gym, rooftop lounge, barbecue area, and a dedicated bike elevator to secured bike lockers. Just phenomenal. 8X on the Park. Yale Town Living elevated. Starting at 2,549,000. GST included. Head over to 8Xonthepark.com for more information.
0: Hello. 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 This is the Vancouver Weather Estate
1: Podcast. <laughs>
2: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt,
1: I'm super excited about today's episode because we have none other than Francis Beulah. That's right, uh, famous journalist in Vancouver. Everyone knows Francis. Used to work at the Vancouver Sun, kind of the city hall beat reporter. Right. The David Simon uh, of, of Vancouver, I would say. From The Wire, yeah. David Simon from The Wire, Francis Bula from Vancouver, that's right. Sure, yeah. Uh, but she's now freelance journalist, but she writes primarily, I would say, from the Globe and Mail is, is where I see her byline. Uh, Van
2: Mag, where else? Uh, well, she was uh, with Vancouver Sun for many years. Right, right.
1: right. Yeah. yeah. I think I said that already.
2: Okay, though, well, I, I was just <laughs> rounding it out. Great,
1: great. So we got her on the great thing. Where am I? The great (laughs) thing about Francis Beulah in this conversation is one, we haven't touched on, on the new council all that much. No, we haven't. We talk about city politics. We talk about where we're at. Um, also she wrote the foreword for Larry Beasley's book Vancouverism one of my which is favorites a, which is a fascinating basically a fascinating essay so we talk about that essay as well and it's, it's she a went gen- to the archives for that yeah essay. She, it, it's a it's a really fabulous conversation so stay tuned for that we should also say about Larry Beasley's Vancouverism we're talking about it a lot on this podcast but the fact is we got signed copies and we're giving them away we have another winner this week the way that you can win a signed autographed copy of Larry Beasley's Vancouverism is go Google Vancouver real estate podcast on the right hand side there will be a review button leave us a review we appreciate it that's how we're growing but we're also giving a book away a week and you'll be entered in and that's uh, your hat Your entered name into a goes, draw your name
2: goes into a hat and it, it we should say this is honestly uh, for people that haven't heard us talk about Vancouverism it is a beautiful book. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like a great coffee table book. It's also just a great book if you're just excited and live in the city of Vancouver and want to understand the history of how areas became established areas. Right? Yeah, yeah, that, that's for sure. So what else, Matt, before we get to our interview with Francis?
1: Uh, well, we are an established podcast looking for a studio.
2: Yeah, so check <laughs> us out. There's the, um, we're, we're actually, we went on the Georgia Strait and we're now, uh, what is it? Podcast Seeking Podcast Studio? <laughs> that's, is that, that basically that's where right. we are? That's right. Um, we're, we're on Craigslist. Are, we're on Craigslist. Well, your wife's basically having a baby within the, like, the next week and a th- half. Within
1: the next week. She's off of work now. Right. So she's... Definitely uninterested in us using. She's forever uninterested in the
2: podcast, but she's (laughs) she's extra uninterested in when you're doing it in her living room while she's on maternity leave.
1: Yeah, so so your place is out. We moved to my house, uh, and the issue, of course, here is we're now in July. My wife's a teacher. My daughter just graduated from grade two. Congratulations! Yeah, but the fact is, they're home now. Right. So we're finding it increasingly difficult. We had to host Francis downtown. At a makeshift studio, so the sound quality is not so great. We definitely have to figure this out because, uh, yeah, we need the studio. So we're looking for studio space
2: donations if you if you want to donate a studio. <laughs> Otherwise, in about a month and a half, bear with us because we are going to have hopefully good sound quality for the next. Month or two, but then we're actually moving into a permanent studio that's right that we're really excited about. So we appreciate you bearing with bearing with us. and we also appreciate the reviews, keep them coming. And Matt, maybe we should just cut to our interview with Francis Beulah.
1: It's a fantastic talk, so enjoy guys.
2: Okay, so we're here with Francis Beulah, freelance journalist covering urban issues and city politics. And also primarily working with uh, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for coming on. Nice to see you again.
0: Hello. Great to be here.
2: Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Francis. Can you maybe start by telling our listeners, a lot of our listeners obviously know who you are, but can you share a little bit about yourself?
0: Um, sure. Um, I'm a person with a degree in French literature and a background in commercial fishing who became a journalist. <laughs> That's my claim to fame. But I've covered city politics uh, in Vancouver for the last 25 years. I was at the Sun for part of that. Now I freelance, um, as you said, mainly for the Globe and Mail, also Van Mag and um, BC Business. Uh, and um, have covered a huge range of issues in that time because of you know what city politics encompasses here. Uh, a lot about drug policy in the downtown east side, uh, a lot about development inevitably. Um, I'm not a real estate reporter, I'm not a development reporter, but I do write about the intersection of city politics and development, uh, which these days is really interesting all around the region as all these new councils are struggling with how do we deal with the housing crisis here. Uh, So yeah, it's been a great uh, quarter century ride and here I am.
1: No kidding, an interesting place to, uh, to to be watching the city for sure.
0: It really is. I mean I think Vancouver's seen as a bit of a leader around the world and certainly on this continent uh, in some of the things that it's done uh, because the you know just the way drug policy here evolved way past what other cities were doing. we were the first place in North America with a supervised injection site because the problem here was so extreme and similarly with housing, because the issues here are so extreme, it's pushed the city into having to take action uh, in ways that other cities are now looking at.
1: So we had Larry Beasley on a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we want to talk about your your foreword to his book, which Adam and I both really enjoyed. But maybe before we got get to that, uh, and I we kind of tried to ask Larry this question as well, um, but why... Like, you mentioned the extremes, the extremes with drugs, the extremes with housing, and it seems like Vancouver is kind of an incubator for interesting ideas. Like, do you have any thoughts just generally on why?
0: Yeah, because it is funny. Like, in the 70s, Vancouver was nowheresville. Um, You know, I remember backpacking around Europe, and I tell people in the 70s, so I'm really old, everyone. Uh, (laughs) Uh and I would say I was from Vancouver and people were like, "Oh, where is that?" And I'd say, "Well, it's a 5-hour flight from New York." "Oh, that's like on the West Coast." Yeah, that's right. You know, like people just had no idea what Vancouver was, where it was. It was kind of and the only thing that people knew about it was there had been a documentary about the heroin use on Granville Street. So sometimes when I was hitchhiking, people would have seen that documentary and would ask about it. Um but we were kind of a Overgrown Port Hardy back then. And uh, what really happened was in the 80s, as we all know, Expo 86, the province uh, was going into decline. The resource industries were struggling. Um, they felt like they needed to attract something new to the province. And so there was this real engagement with uh, Asia, you know, trying to get Asian capital over here. Um, you know, so we see Expo '86, and then we see you know the sale of Expo lands to a Hong Kong zillionaire, uh, and so on. And uh, you see the city really starting to change after that. Um, population starting to come back uh, from the declines of the '70s, um, and then it's a port city, so. The drug issue is always going to be big in a port city. It always was here and it just continued to accelerate. So it is an interesting incubator um, and especially in city development because you know a lot of planners had ideas about what they wanted to do with their cities but they didn't get the flow of capital that Vancouver did. What really made Vancouver such a fascinating sandbox for developers and planners and architects was you had a combination of a council that was willing to encourage development, land that could be developed, all the old industrial land around the edges of the downtown, uh, and a lot of money coming in to finance it. So those three things combined to um, accelerate Vancouver way past other cities in terms of experimentation and development and city building.
1: Right, and and kind of... in just thinking about what you're saying here and the pace, right? The pace in Vancouver, even in the last, well, I mean, every year you look around and it's like, man, every it's, such a dynamic place Mm -hmm. more so than i remember
0: i I went to live in montreal for one year 91 92 and i kept telling people it's really weird there's no cranes anywhere (laughs) in this city you know i'd never lived on a block without construction before (laughs) and uh yeah it's i mean now people brag about the number of cranes in toronto or seattle but you know vancouver was going through that for a couple of decades before that
1: so, so maybe we should uh, talk. Um, one of, the, I mean, we I, we'd love to talk to you about uh, kind of city politics and everything else, but. Um you did write that forward that was really fascinating, and we're giving away some of of Larry Beasley's books, so so some of the listeners so, will get to listen yeah, to it so, if they don't so buy people, it. So people,
0: I'm assuming everyone knows Larry Beasley is the former chief planner. He just wrote this book called Vancouverism, and yeah, I did the forward for it. You know, right, and it's yeah. kind of a,
1: a history of a, a urbanism in Vancouver and what sets it apart. Maybe can you can you walk us through the story you tell? Yeah,
0: so I mean, Larry and I have. Talked for years when he was chief planner. We would, you know, have regular little meetings to talk about, you know, what was coming up at the city and so on. He'd always wanted to do a book. Um, finally, he realized he needed to write it himself. That it was better if he wrote it rather than me. Uh, but I did do the foreword. Uh, which was to take a look at Vancouver and its housing up until the sort of mid-80s when you see the real emergence of this new paradigm of Vancouverism and um, residential living downtown and so on. Uh, And it was fascinating for me. got to spend some time in the archives and digging out old, you know, articles about the West End from the 1960s and... Um, reading some 700-page thesis (laughs) on Vancouverism. (laughs) I really did. I can't believe it now. But, um, you know, it, it it was fascinating for me to be reminded of how, what a conflicted relationship Vancouver has always had with development, that there's been these sort of spurts of development and then resistance to it, um, this uh, you know portrayal of Vancouver in the early years as kind of this bucolic place where anyone any working person could have a house in a yard, uh, at the same time that there were actual shanty towns you know along the waterfront uh, and so on. Always this very interesting contrast, and um, something I hadn't really realized uh, was I always assumed that the reason that Vancouver was comfortable with the kind of density that was produced when they developed the industrial lands around downtown, Coal Harbor, you know, North uh, North Falls Creek, uh, uh, and so on, was because people had seen the West End and thought it was a great model, uh, and, you know, we see what density uh, done well looks like, and so we're just going to emulate that. And when I went back and looked at history, I realized that actually at the time when... Um, the Vancouver City Council was starting to talk about developing the industrial lands that were kind of abandoned at that point, or about to be, uh, was that people hated the West End. They thought it was a failed, uh, you know, neighbourhood. There was, uh, you know, people were concerned about the traffic and the prostitution and sort of the general level of poverty and all these transient people living downtown. And there was this real... um, fear of it in a way and interestingly when the first piece of land in the inner city got developed which is South Falls Creek you know like the the older South Falls Creek that started being developed in the 70s the council of the day this new team council that had been elected in 1972 they'd halted all development in the west end they changed a the policy that it essentially killed off new development in the west end And they were also very anxious about too much density in South Falls Creek. So that's why you see, you know, that it's sort of these two-story townhouses everywhere set in a lot of parkland. Like, someone pointed out that there's actually more space per person there than in most suburban developments because they put so much parkland around because they thought, well, families won't move down here if it's too dense. Uh, So we have to make it very park-like and not, uh, you know, no towers or anything like that. So it it was interesting to see that the West End was not a model and that there was this real anxiety about density, even from councils that now are portrayed as being, you know, the harbinger of, you know, the new Vancouver, like the team council of 1972.
1: Just thinking out loud here... um there's some leaseholds there's like 6 or 7 or 8 buildings in the west end and my understanding or and this is potentially <laughs> wildly inaccurate is that there was uh that those were meant to be stratified early on and they and the council in the early 70s said they put a halt to it and then they got around that by making these private leaseholds which they're kind of an anomaly in the area in the, the west
0: that, end or south falls creek no in the, in
1: the west end so like on oh. Yeah, I, on I Harwood and Burnaby. There's a couple towers there, those old concrete towers from right. the late 60s. But on city land? No, they're private. Oh. But it's like they're the only private leaseholds around, well, and it's kind of it, before, strange.
0: Before um, strata condo legislation came into place, and in, I can't remember when it was, but the only way you could own an apartment building downtown, and I even remember like there was a councillor, Lynn Kennedy, once who lived in an apartment like that. The only way you could own in the west end was to form a co-op right. and then everyone would own a share of the building right. and that was the only way to own an apartment uh uh back before condos before were in- stratus invented yeah <laughs>
1: yeah and maybe maybe i got that history wrong i was a realtor who told we're me gonna what have what to s- so send cool. you back to the archives <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Oh well, just adding to all the myths of Vancouver real estate and housing. <laughs> we're contributing, <laughs> anyway. That's my understanding of how it worked right. uh, before. Yeah,
1: and and so it sounds like um, is one of the takeaways. It's just interesting to hear that, and this happens with history all the time. I think when it kind of gets sanitized or glossed over, that there was um, a lot more agreement to what happened in the past than there is today. Like, there's a lot of strife right now. Are you seeing in the past kind of similar debates raging?
0: Um, Well, I think in the 70s, when the team council was elected in 72, there was like a popular revolt against the NPA of the day, which was just seen as you know, pro-developer, pro-freeway, you know, running roughshod over neighbourhoods. And there was this kind of neighbourhood power movement that had emerged in many cities, you know, kind of led in a way by the Jane Jacobs resistance to um, highway building in New York and so on. So, you know, that happened here as well. So there was this sense of super neighbourhood power uh, and so the, a lot of resistance to development. As I said, the team council kind of ended it in the West End, um, Kits Point Grey. You know, you see a few towers in Kits and over by the university on 10th at Blanca, and that's it. And you, you wonder, well, what happened? Well, those towers went up in the 70s, and then, then there was um, this council got elected that was very pro-neighborhood power and kind of ended that. So um, I think what happened... So there, are, there has been, you know, the, the fights over development for sure. Um, but what happened in the 80s and 90s is it was um, all the development activity was funneled into this industrial land where no one was living. Mm-hmm. So it was very convenient for the whole city. You didn't have to go disrupt the single family neighborhoods. You didn't have to alarm them by saying we're going to build a townhouse here, you know, or something <laughs> right. like that. And uh, it was all funneled into that area. And there was at this, I, I've, I talk about this frequently when I go to planning classes to talk this amazing consensus between developers, counselors, and planning staff, and really the public about how to develop this area. Uh, and there were no neighbors living nearby for the most part. So it was pretty easy to do because there was not neighborhood resistance. Uh, to this kind of thing. And I think everyone thought that that was the norm for Vancouver. They f- they forgot that the actual norm is to fight over every last thing that goes right, up. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so we had sort of 20 years of that. And then I think what happened is, you know, uh, um, developers started to run out of available sites in the downtown. So they started moving out into the communities <clears throat> at the same time, that you saw this movement growing to sort of uh, uh, praise density in cities as a good environmental move, mm-hmm. you know, the way Sam, former Mayor Sam Sullivan did. So then the conflict started building up again because you were moving into areas that hadn't seen anything higher than a three-story building for, you know, 40 or 50 years.
1: Right. But but it sounds like, so the when... Just in looking back at the the history here, when Yale Town was uh, industrial land and, and the ideas were emerging, the West End wasn't being looked at as a model. No, no. That's, that's fascinating.
0: Even though, you know, another one of the things that I found when I looked back at the history of the West End was there were people who were talking about some of the ideas that we think of as um, Vancouverism of the 80s. So there was this... For example, I found he's not, you know, the inventor of it or anything like that. But this European architect named Wilf Butches, who in the 60s was talking about, you know, really the ideal form is like a tall tower with some townhouses at the bottom. And we really need to pay attention to the street level, that it's very friendly and accommodating for people, because that's where people live is on the sidewalks. You know, so some of those ideas of Vancouverism seem to kind of, emerge out of the air here. Um, and in the forward, I talk about uh, the fact that Vancouver's geography, I think, had something to do with it. Because in Seattle and Portland, you did see a big burst of apartment building in the 20s to 50s. Um, Uh, you know, those sort of beautiful old three- and four-story brick apartments or whatever. But they never developed an area like the West End. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the thing about the West End was it was close to downtown, but it was also close to Ocean Beaches Park, a big park. And it created this extremely desirable area to live Uh, And even in the 60s, people were starting to notice that um, a certain number of downtown finance workers were starting to occupy the apartments, especially close to Stanley Park. Uh, And so that area, because of its unique kind of beautiful setting, Mm -hmm. did make it an attractive candidate for density. Uh, But... Yet yeah, then by the end of the sixties, yeah, uh, as as I've noted, people thought it was a problem area. You know, too much traffic, too many poor people in the center of it. Um, you know, a lot of when I first started reporting in at the Sun in 1987, I mean, still a lot of sex trade workers in the area and working on the streets and so on. Right. Yeah.
1: Who in in your mind are are the heroes of of Vancouver's urbanist past?
0: I mean, there are a lot. And, you know, Larry Beasley, when he talks about his book, he gives credit to a lot of those people, especially Ray Spaxman, who was the city planner, who was brought in by the new team council as the director. And he really set a culture of, um, yes, we want development here. We're going to uh, try to attract density, but we have to do it in a way that, Is neighborly. That was always something that he really insisted on. Don't just stick up huge buildings and ignore everything at the street level or the impact around. It always had to fit in with the neighborhood or the area that you were trying to create. Um, so, you know, I know that Larry gives him a lot of credit, and many people do, um, for that tone that he sat. Um, it was funny when I interviewed him for the forward. He said it was a really rough job, like they threatened to fire him every week because the mayor of the day um, was really impatient and wanted all these things to change right away, and he couldn't understand why Ray Spaxman was taking so long to set up, for example, the development permit board or the urban design panel or, you know, get going on South Falls Creek. Uh, But that was part of, you know, the way he operated was to make sure that it would function and that everyone had a say, that it wasn't going to be the way the NPA of the 60s had operated, where it was just, we know how the city should be run, we're going to do it. Um, You, the little people, um, just stand aside and wait for us.
2: So, Francis, maybe shifting gears a little bit, um, in thinking about today in Vancouver and some of the complications around affordability, housing, what's happening in the city, does this moment remind you of of any other time in Vancouver's past?
0: I mean, mm, in some ways it does. It feels like a resurgence of what was going on before... um, you know the development in the down you know downtown area started like when i first started at city hall in 1974 everyone was just recovering from the effort to do uh, plan a new neighborhood around the old brewery that had existed at um, arbutus near arbutus and 12th you know that that area uh, which now has some apartments and a seniors residence and things like that but there was a huge huge incredible fight in that area And um, people were exhausted. Like, when I came to City Hall, everyone was like, we can't go through that again. Like, you know, I'll kill myself if I have to (laughs) to, to do that again. And they were looking for other ways to deal with development. And that's when Gordon Campbell came up with the city plan, the idea of doing a big city plan for the whole city and things like that. So it does remind me, sort of take me back to those days. But I do think it's different now for a few reasons. One is obviously social media. Um, you know, uh, neighborhood groups are now formed more by social media than, and in opposition to things. When mm-hmm. I first started covering City Hall, there were lots of neighborhood associations, but they were formed of sort of a, a wide group or a relatively wide group, and they dealt with all kinds of issues. You don't, you barely see those kinds of um, neighborhood associations anymore. Most of the neighborhood associations were formed to oppose something, yeah, uh, and so they only like a attract a single issue almost. Yes, yeah. Right. And and so they only attract the people who are also opposed. Like, they're not really open to uh, anybody with a slightly different opinion. And I'd say Dunbar and Commercial Drive are maybe the last vestiges of where you have neighbourhood associations that still draw from a wider population. Um, So that's different. Um, And uh, also, uh, we've seen the arrival of this younger generation of people in the city who are really impatient with what's going on. Um, Sometimes some of them associate themselves with the YIMBY movement, Yes, In My Backyard, um, which started in San Francisco. But it's really, you know, younger people in all kinds of expensive cities that have suddenly started to have a voice and are... And, and even if they don't associate themselves with the Yimby movement, I still hear that same thing. Like I remember at one housing meeting I was at, I was talking to some guy who works in investment advising or something downtown and lives in a condo. And he's not part of any Yimby movement, but he was saying, I don't care about these older people and their stupid heritage houses. You know, like I just want a place to live in this city and I want the city to make room for people like me. Um, So you're seeing this millennial, it's really the millennial group that's saying, you have to make room in the city for us, and you can't just be preserving your giant yards and your beautiful heritage houses, because you're shutting all of us out. And that's really been different as well. Um, So it leads to a different kind of dynamic at council, uh, but then the social media aspect makes it quite toxic at times as right. i think we all know <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: How how different was that than the need in the in the 70s for people that wanted, you know, townhomes or buildings in certain area? What was driving that? Well,
0: you know, I keep telling people until about 5 years ago, every single time I went to a hearing, all I heard was local homeowners saying, "We don't want this because, you know, renters are evil. There'll be more crime if you put a rental building up, townhouses, there'll be more they'll need more garbage delivery, so there'll be more noise on our streets." I remember that was the uh, complaint about a block of townhouses over by Tenth um, Avenue, at one point, uh, and then every so often it was if it was social housing or something for um, the developmentally disabled, you'd get someone from an organization coming out and saying, "Well, but we actually really need this." So um, it was very dominated by the neighborhood groups who, and, and particular. Parts of the neighborhood groups, people who didn't want to see change. Uh, so that's really different now to have these younger people who aren't affiliated with nonprofit housing or whatever coming out and just saying, please support projects that uh, allow our generation to stay in the city. Uh, so that feels really different to me than what was going on before. I, I really hadn't heard anything like that uh, in all my time of covering public hearings up until five years ago, as I said.
1: And and it's interesting because it feels like both those things kind of go together, right? The the The, the role of social media and also it seems like there's millennials that aren't necessarily housing activists but are kind of engaged in in cities around the world so uh, you'd imagine they almost are getting strength from each other through social media right in some mm-hmm.
0: ways oh for sure like um the yimbi movement i see there's i follow some people in various cities, Minneapolis, Seattle, uh, Denver, um, Los Angeles, uh, and clearly they support each other. There's there's been a couple of little national conferences where the YIMBY people get together and and kind of bolster each other. Let's say this at the next public hearing, I guess. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that does help reinforce them. But it also, um, for neighborhood associations, it helps them drop like-minded people So they become very reinforced in their attitudes too Mm -hmm. about what they think is acceptable because they have drawn a group of like-minded people around them and they think that their positions are right and the Yimby's think that their positions are right and and so you have this inevitable clash.
1: Right. But it does seem like it's interesting because in some ways, and I think Vancouverism, the book, and Vancouver as a city, it's unique in North America in... in Just the way the city is right but a lot of the issues that vancouver's grappling with are actually the issues that toronto new york san
0: francisco denver boston yeah yeah like all
1: these cities are grappling with the same thing even though vancouver we somehow think of ourselves and we probably rightly so we're unique in a lot of ways but then in so many ways with Mm -hmm. the housing issues right now it's just the run-of-the-mill in all these larger cities. Well, and cities. I think
0: that's what people are trying to understand, is where is Vancouver like everyone else, and where is it different? Um, so I've talked about, like, the global housing flu that that everyone caught, you know, several years ago. So you are seeing this global phenomenon of housing prices accelerating way past local incomes. Um uh, you know, a, a, and a huge spike in prices and things like that. So that's kind of happening around the world with many cities. But then in Vancouver, is it worse? It, you know, it's, that's what I'm always, I think, and a lot of people are always struggling with, is we do have, yes, foreign capital coming in primarily from China. How much does that add to it? Uh, you know, some people obviously believe it drives everything in Vancouver, um, and uh, and that if we didn't have it, we'd you know, house prices would be Saskatoon nineteen seventy three or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Sounds um, like you
1: agree with that position. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: I yeah, I am of the it's also complicated school, <laughs> uh, but you know, I. For me, what what I'd love to know, and I don't see people analyzing this very well, is, okay, every city's had a bump in unaffordability and house prices going past local incomes and housing crises and increases in homelessness. How is Vancouver different from that? I think there is a a difference because of, uh, you know, just the way Miami attracts a lot of South American capital, and so that plays a certain dynamic there, um, it does here. I think a lot of people feel it doesn't completely explain it. And foreign capital comes to where domestic capital also likes to speculate and invest. Like the the whole issue with tight markets is they attract speculators. So any place where someone sees house prices going up um, astronomically, like both domestic and foreign speculators are going to pile in, mm-hmm. in investors. Uh, So we've seen that in all of those cities. I mean, Vancouver is funny in the sense that we always like to think we're very unique. Uh, And when you talk to people in Vancouver, you'd think that no other city had ever dealt with homelessness or bike lanes or housing affordability or, you know, any of these issues. And, of course, we do share a lot with other cities. But I think there are some local circumstances that also you know help with some of our problems like we are have a different planning regime than dallas or you know um houston or whatever right Uh, or even san francisco like we are more open to density than cities like san francisco but we also have a tendency to think that what's happening here no other city is suffering the way we do
1: right that's interesting Mm -hmm. Well, well maybe switching gears um just a little bit. Uh, I know City Hall or the the City Council has changed since we've last spoken to you. Oh yes, um, <laughs> and uh, we don't talk to too many folks about it. And I think you're the best one uh, out there to to kind of get a report card on on Vancouver City Council so far. How do you, how do you think they're doing?
0: They're still struggling with newbiness. Um, You know, and and many councils around the region are. Uh, You know, the Surrey Council is kind of fracturing. Um, You know, other councils are having their problems. In Vancouver, you have new people with no one party really in charge. And they all want to make their mark, so I don't – I'm not – revealing anything new by saying that council meetings have just turned into these unbelievable marathon sessions because everyone wants to make a motion on their particular issue. And so every council meeting now lasts three, four, five days. Uh, And a very uncertain voting pattern at this point. Um, You know, and the mayor, Kennedy Stewart, keeps trying to reassure people like it's not as bad as you think. And actually most development projects are getting approved and, you know, the city is still functioning. But obviously there's a lot of anxiety about um, things that are getting turned down or some of the questions that are arising at council about, oh, well, should we really approve anything if even one low-cost rental unit is going to be eliminated as a result? Uh, So there's a lot of anxiety about what's going on, and that sort of came to a head last week when council voted uh, not to approve a uh, 21-unit townhouse development in Shaughnessy on Granville Street um, because it was next to a hospice was one of the reasons, but that was seen as a, a, a real crunch vote. And uh, council split on it in odd ways. Um, two of the NPA councillors voted for the project and three voted against. The Greens voted against. Um, uh, Gene
1: Swanson voted against. it.
0: Yeah, Gene Swanson voted against it. And that was seen as a really um, problematic sign of how wobbly this council was and and what might happen with development so I think people are still waiting to see what the long-term trend is whether it's going to be mostly things will get approved things will go through as they used to or you know um, high-profile projects are going to get picked off and um, you know generate massive opposition and and the council will turn against it so I think people are waiting to see but it's very uncertain
1: right and, and but and just to flesh out uh that project like that was purpose built rental as i understand yes it, correct, so yeah. it was it was all rental uh and and it was part of it was a hospice, part of it was that the rents were seen as too high as too high thirty
0: five hundred for a three bedroom yeah. right uh yeah, I mean that is uh and And then one of the weird things that I pointed out on Twitter was in one of the the early rounds of of discussions with the neighborhood a year ago, people in the neighborhood had said, oh, we're worried you don't have enough parking and these people are going to end up parking on our streets. So they were only required to provide 19 spaces, but because of the neighborhood feedback, they they built the full 32 that were allowed. And then when the project got to council, two councillors said, oh, well, the parking's too much, you know, and you're going to have to dig a big hole and... You know, So my whole thing was, whatever you think about this, what is a developer supposed to do in that circumstance? Because it's
1: worth pointing out, they had a set of guidelines that they needed to, the hoops to jump through, they jumped through them all, right? They basically bent over backwards to get it approved, and then it Mm -hmm. still got shot down.
0: Yeah, and it was a really unfortunate example of how the rhetoric really built up on both sides. And so people at the hospice were like became convinced that oh this developer is actually going to sell this he's going to turn around and sell these and i said well i i believe they have to sign a legal agreement and there's a covenant on title that says it has to stay rental and they were convinced no no it can be it could be flipped and converted and you know just every conspiracy theory that you could imagine was going around about this so um so that was not a good sign for the city like it doesn't mean projects shouldn't be turned down but this one was seen as kind of ominous because the developer had done everything the city asked it was going to provide rentals okay somewhat high end but honestly there's a house near me that's renting for 4500 you know it wasn't completely outrageous right um uh going to provide rentals in an area that largely has just you know huge mansions in it um and so i think people were left uncomfortable at the end like what is the real message that this council is sending
1: right
2: it, it seems to me though if a, if a developer is going to build on the land buy the land you know pay for the improvement and they can't achieve a rent that makes sense to them they just won't develop the project
0: Yeah, and that was unfortunate to see some people say, well, they just need to go back and somehow reduce the number of townhouses and also reduce the rents. And, and, you know, it's just hard to talk to people like that who've never actually looked at a pro forma, like the financial calculations for a building, to figure out, like, what do you need in order to cover four hundred dollar a square foot development costs and two hundred dollar a square foot soft costs and uh, maintenance and and everything else that goes into building a building and to just tell people go back and build something affordable like says to me these are people who don't understand the economics currently of building
1: well and my understanding is uh that potentially there's been talk at least that it's just going to be a they're going to build a a large mansion on that site now.
0: Well, yeah, the owners... So much better. (laughs) The owners are developers. You know, like this was not their only project. But they do live in the house there, and their plan originally was that they would build these townhouses and their family members would occupy two or three of them, and then the rest would be rented out. Um, And now, well, they're trying to accommodate their large family, so they're just going to rebuild something that... um, You know suits the family
1: yeah which is i I mean it's worth pointing out potentially that the economics or the supply issue there it's like okay so shoot down some potentially higher priced rentals for no rentals Uh,
0: yeah and i know that um you know there are people who uh you know don't like the what they call the supplyist narrative but honestly like If you don't have those townhouses, then people who want to stay in the city, what they do is they go and take over houses that maybe had two or three suites in them, and they remodel them, and then they turn that into housing. Like the gentrification or upscaling of housing happens whether you build new stuff or not. Mm -hmm. If people want to live in the city, if there is no new supply coming in, they will go to the old supply, and they'll fix it up so that they can stay in the city. Right. And uh, I haven't heard anyone talk about how you deal with with that. Um, the thing is that when that when that quieter gentrification happens, no one needs a development permit. Like they're just quietly turfing tenants out of um, multi-unit houses and converting them to single family uh, and, and so on. And you don't really see any newspaper stories or you know media stories about that because it happens very quietly and doesn't need a public hearing
2: maybe keeping in that vein francis so we've had a lot of people from udi on in the past and then we've had developers that are are now leaving the city of vancouver because they've decided that you know there's too much red too many too, many, too much red tape and and too much opposition to projects uh, and obviously the price to build here is is quite high for developers it, in terms of just kind of thinking of the city over time and and how vancouver has developed do you see this as a risk to the city, uh, oppositions not only to um, working with developers, or does it feel like that friction between that relationship might pose a problem long-term?
0: You know, I'm not totally sure I buy the we're packing our bags and leaving the city narrative. I think that people like to say that, and maybe there are some projects, but I've also, like someone just sent me a long note of all the new rental applications that are coming in. Uh... I think that when things get more complicated and difficult, what it does do is eliminate some of the smaller players, the the people who are building like the smaller, maybe more affordable stuff because they don't have they don't have the institutional strength to like go on a two-year fight um, you know, to get something through whereas the bigger developers uh do. So it does tend to favor the bigger developers who can just bide their time uh, when you have complications. But I have to say, people who say they're packing up and leaving Vancouver, where are they going? Burnaby now has extremely stringent um, rules around development and what you have to provide for um, rental housing. Uh, District of North Van is turning things down. Uh, yeah,
1: pretty co- very similarly to to Vancouver. Yeah, right? they've yeah. turned down some and some West crazy Van projects. and
0: yeah. Port Moody and Port Coquitlam are both elected councils and mayors. Uh, you know, as a kind of um, let's we're not so sure about development uh, kind of thing. So, um, uh, I, I think it's just becoming difficult uh, throughout the region. <clears throat> Um, And I do wonder if it isn't going to force development into the places that are still relatively open, Coquitlam, Surrey, Richmond. Um, You know, it it may slow it down somewhat. uh, But, you know, the returns in Vancouver have been pretty good. And one of the reasons... Vancouver has more development typically than and everyone else, almost everyone else combined, because people want to be here because the returns have historically been really good. So if they have a choice between a 20-story tower here in Vancouver versus in Coquitlam, they know they're going to make more here, in spite of the higher costs, because you can charge so much more. Um, so that's always what's kept them in here. Mm-hmm. is can they make a profit? And as long as they can do that, they're going to be here.
1: Do you think just thinking through the the comments about that that uh, um, that council vote, and maybe just more broadly, is Vancouver in a better place today than it was, say, two, three, five years ago?
0: No. Well, you mean just because (laughs) prices have come down?
1: Well, yeah, just generally speaking, like the politics of what's going on. No, I think
0: we're still muddling our way through. And and there's no clear path forward and no common understanding of what we're going to do. And although I'm, I'm someone who thinks that people are romanticizing the idea of what a city plan can do. You know, right. there's all this faith being placed that, oh, we'll get a city plan and then there'll never be another argument about development again in Vancouver. Like, forget it. Right. The minute it's adopted, the, the new fight will start. Right. Uh, but I do think that uh, we don't in this city, we haven't had a good common discussion about where we're going as a city. What is What are we ultimately trying to do here? And I remember talking to a planner in Vancouver saying, so you've got a 30-year plan about how many more people you want to absorb in the city and so on. Okay, but then what about the 30 years after that and the 30 years after that? Like, are people just supposed to accept that it's just going to continue like this? Uh, and I think the city city councils of the past while haven't been really clear about explaining what they think the really long-term future of Vancouver is like is there a point at which they say we'll say we packed in as many people as we can um, you know and if we want this to remain as a livable city then we have to slow this down a bit and even if it means you know other people have to go to other municipalities or whatever you know, we want to keep this livable. And there has been no sense of what the common vision is for people who live here or who want to live here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the city plan that's coming up will be a good discussion of that, to try to hash some of that out instead of just the stupid Twitter wars. Right, right. Um, where no one ever seems to convince anyone of anything.
1: Does, does it sound like, it, just based on the whole conversation here, it seems like you mentioned, you know... Vancouver felt or actually was in a decline kind of pre-Expo, right? And and there was a strategy put in place to kind of open up to the world and invite the world in, right? Mm-hmm. That's at least the story. It strikes me as if we're putting kind of historical timelines on things, like maybe the foreign buyer's tax is the end of that period. But it sounds like at least, and I'm just thinking about this out loud, right now we're in a period of kind of muddling where we don't know what the next kind of iteration looks like or Mm -hmm. what the next era looks like. And we have to, it's going to take some time to figure that out, I guess.
0: I think so. You know, I think um, we haven't really had a big public conversation about, say, how much are we willing to accommodate resort people here? You know, we built Coal Harbour, which is essentially a partial resort, for um, people from Ontario and Edmonton and uh, Saudi Arabia and the states and China and Korea, so we never really had a discussion. Is is this what we want? Are we willing for part of our city to be a resort? And if so, how much? Um, uh, you know how we and we haven't had a discussion about. Um, you know, the impacts of lots of other things. And um, so I think that'll be interesting uh, in city planning. And the foreign buyers tax, again, it's really hard to tell how much of an impact that is because we're seeing price declines in many other cities Mm -hmm. that didn't have a foreign buyers tax. So I think the foreign buyers tax has had some impact, but I don't know, that's just intuitive. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much because there's clearly with the global housing flu... Uh, going on there 's clearly something happening in cities around the world because you 're seeing this price decline right. everywhere right um and in you know, Australia where they 'd already had limits on foreign buying before, so right. something else is going on
1: so it's maybe i actually i spoke too soon about the end of an era maybe this isn 't maybe twenty sixteen mid twenty sixteen wasn 't the end of the era
0: yeah i I mean, it definitely, that whole period was a reassessment of where is Vancouver going. And it had been building for a while. Like, if you remember um, Bing Tom, our beloved architect, he started raising the issue in the early 2000s of was Vancouver becoming a resort city, an investment city. Mm. Um, he came to regret that. Um, I had a long conversation with him about a year before he died. He came to regret uh, the way it had turned into an anti-Chinese, you know, conversation. Right. Uh, But he was the one who raised that issue. So I would say, you know, we've been going through this for almost 20 years, and I don't think we've sorted it out yet, who we think we are as a city. Uh, and I do know there are developers and marketers in town who think Vancouver has no economy. The only economy it has is to sell condos to foreigners. I don't think the, the majority of people in this city in this region would agree with that, uh, and they would not want to see policies in place that would facilitate even more of that.
2: so So maybe we'll leave it there, but uh, Francis, we have this segment called the Five Wire. Can you stick around for that? Five quick questions about Vancouver? Sure um so question number one is what is your favorite neighborhood in vancouver and we asked you this last time but it may have changed since then
0: oh we'll see if you remember what
2: you said last time
0: yeah i don't remember what i said i mean i like different neighborhoods for different things and the thing i kind of like about vancouver is some cities you go into and you know exactly where you are Uh, because there's something about the architecture, whatever, that just says, you're in San Francisco, you're in Boston, whatever. What I love about Vancouver is it's so multiple personality. Like, when you're in among the beautiful arts and crafts bungalows of Kitsilano, or when you're down by the convention center where everything is super modern and fancy and and everything, it's like you're not even in the same city, and is different again, and... um, I mean, I think the place where I'm spending a lot of time is Chinatown, Strathcona these days, Uh, you know, aside from my own neighborhood of Maine and Fraser. Right. Fraser is really changing, so I'm spending more time there. But I would say where I end up spending a lot of time is, yeah, Strathcona, Chinatown.
2: You, you organically reached the same answer as you had last time. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, question number two is what is your favorite bar or restaurant?
0: Oh, hmm.
1: This will be interesting to see if it it's the same.
0: <laughs> I mean, the place that is our neighborhood cafeteria is Sushiyama. Did I say that last time? No, no. Oh, okay. You, you picked
2: a place in Chinatown, but uh, oh. I'm just going off of memory here. I should yeah, listen yeah. back to the tape. But
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, when I go with my son, we always go to Chinatown barbecue. Like It's it's like we're addicted or something like that. So, <laughs> but.
2: so Sushi Emma.
0: Yeah. It's... Uh, a funny little sushi restaurant, but uh, at the corner of Scotia and Broadway across from Kingsgate Mall, so not the world's most charming area. But, <laughs> but fantastic sushi. I've never had a dynamite roll as good as uh, theirs anywhere else. Run by Koreans, of course, as far as I know. So
1: First place you bring someone from out of town.
0: Hmm. It depends on their interests. I have friends from Denver who are fixated on uh, um, having, uh, uh, taking advantage of Richmond's great Chinese restaurants. Right. So we go out there. We're always the only white people. Hi, here we are. Can't <laughs> read the menu. Uh, you know, yeah, what yeah. is this thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, so. It's almost too authentic. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's like the cheapest trip to Beijing you'll ever take or Shanghai or whatever. <laughs> Um, like I've never, I personally have never been to the suspension bridge, Capilano suspension bridge. Right. Um, like it's just not something I would take people, um, a place that I like to take people and some are surprised by it, but I love the walk from Steveston to the old Japanese boat building and canning factories in, um, on the river. Because I used to work as a commercial fisherman, so I kind of love that landscape. Yeah. And there's a beautiful boardwalk along the Fraser River out to these historic canneries and bunkhouses and things like that. So that's probably something people wouldn't expect of me.
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's a great answer. Well, considering your commercial fisherman past and sounds like uh, globe-trotting through Europe at the very least, what is one piece of advice you would tell your 18-year-old self today? <laughs> Oh, my God. Today.
0: <laughs> I just went to a reunion of people I was on an Israeli kibbutz with when I was 18. My one would be, don't be so crazy, but whatever. <laughs> um, one piece of advice for my... Oh, I wish I had been... Uh, more aware of what i wanted to do in life you know um and focused on that rather than just bopping around getting experiences and obviously buying a house in vancouver (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) i didn't buy till i was 35 and you know by then it had already soared past you know what my high school friends had paid right like that yeah
1: right Um, wow that's that's interesting though because a lot of people that kind of Go through kind of finding a path, uh, the the journey. They always talk about the journey, but it sounds like that's not the case here.
0: Uh, I you, you know I studied music and then French. It was like I thought I was a debutante or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And I wish I had done more like uh, po- political science or international relations. I wish I had been a little bit more focused on the issues that I now care about right, a right. lot. Yeah.
2: And, and final question,, wow, what this is, is really personal and, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and final question, what is something you've purchased for under five hundred dollars recently that has had a positive impact on your life?
0: Oh, that's a great question because I often buy things and then think, did this change my life for the better or not? So I'll buy, like, I bought a stupid $3,000 rug for my living room and then immediately the cats like ruined it and we spilled wine on it. And I was like, why did I do that? But when I bought my iPad, that changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you're asking about under 500. Hmm. Mine. The things that have changed my life have generally been over 500. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think...
2: We'll, we'll up the budget for you. It will be the iPad under, <laughs> <laughs> under 1500
0: <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I don't know. And, and then, you know, as you get older, it's less about the personal things like this um, sound therapy. I know someone who does sound therapy uh, with Tibetan brass bowls. And I, I am not like a hippy dippy type, and under normal circumstances, but actually, it's been fantastic. <laughs> wow.
2: That's, yeah that's oh that's great that's yeah it's, it, it
0: induces a kind of meditative state that's very uh, helpful yeah so as I said, I'm not normally like this yeah. <laughs> that's
1: a good one though that, that is a good one. one that's that's a great one. Well, thanks so much for your time, Francis. That was again uh, a fantastic conversation and interestingly enough, we just heard from a listener i, I just saw of this uh, like honestly less than a week ago who said, his, his favorite episode ever was yours, which was oh. like two and a half years ago. So I said, well, wow. f- interestingly enough, we're yeah. having her back. So oh, well, that's nice
0: because, you know, like uh, in the Twitter era, of course, you have your crowd of people who hate you and think <laughs> you should die. So that's <laughs> yeah. nice to hear. <laughs> oh, good, someone who doesn't think I should die. <laughs>
2: and uh, how can people find out more about your writing and what you're up to?
0: So I have a blog where I try to post my stories. I mean, people don't really look at blogs uh, that much anymore, but it does have the archive of my story. So at Uh And then um, I am, as I said, in the Globe and Mail, I have a profile of Doug McCallum coming up in BC Business, um, oh, although hard to keep pace with what's going on out there uh, and so on. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the best.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks again for your time.
0: Thank you.
1: So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Vancouver staple and
2: freelance journalist. Francis Bula. really enjoyed that conversation with Francis, and you know we covered a lot of ground, lots of interesting ideas, and it's just great having somebody who's such a phenomenal
1: resource like Francis Bula on the program. She knows the city as as well as anyone, that's for sure, and she sits through those council meetings. Uh, she has a really interesting perspective and a historical perspective on. On, on Vancouver, where we're at, where we're going, where we've been. So it's a it, it was a great conversation. For sure. And one thing we should say is
2: if you listen to that interview and you really liked it, she also wrote the foreword for Larry Beasley's Vancouverism. We're giving away a signed copy. All you have to do is Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. On the right-hand side, you can leave us a review on Google. And if you leave us a review, you will be entered into a draw to get a signed copy of Vancouverism by Larry Beasley with a foreword By Francis Beulah. Super exciting. That's right. So maybe we'll give away
1: this week's copy right now. Secret drum solo and go easy. Well, that was a little bit more experimental than i was thinking
2: well fresh off a of jazz fest uh we know that uh, secret was at jazz fest and uh a little bit more creative on yeah, that drum yeah that solo. was that was good that was a drum roll i should say yeah. it's not actually it, you'd think it was a drum solo <laughs> the way secrets uh
1: <laughs> rolling these out these days so let's get to the winner it is amon rantawa and i'm hoping i'm pronouncing uh your last name right amon What's it sounded say?
2: like you might be, but it sounded like you might have emphasized the wrong syllable. I'm yeah, not sure. I'm not uh,
1: emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, I'm on rights. I have listened to every single episode since the beginning, which is a feat in itself. Right. Uh, very interesting topics and great guests. I have recommended this podcast to multiple coworkers and friends who are interested in real estate, or or just the lower mainland in general. Well, thank you very much, Amon. That's a fantastic review. That is a fantastic review.
2: And if you like the program, Make Like Amon, send it to your family and friends and just
1: really share the podcast. That's right. What else do we got this week? We got the VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com website where you got tips and tricks, a news feed, and also excellent resources like private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS,
2: you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available for anyone.
1: And just uh, get in touch at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. If you're not using PCS to search Vancouver Real Estate, you're doing it wrong. We also got the live wire. We're sending out assignment deals. We're sending out deal of the month. We're sending out tips, tricks on that. You're going to want... There's no reason not to be on the live wire. Really, there's no reason to not be actually getting this information.
2: It's free. It's the best resource out there. Really, sign up at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com today.
1: That's right. And if you want to talk about that, real estate in general or anything, really... Call me at any time 778 847 2854 or Matt at
2: Vancouver Real Or if you have any tips for podcast studios for the interim of a month and a half, because we've got uh, we've got Matt's place which is working out, but there's been a lot of little Nas X. Little, little Nas, Nas X. X. Yeah, yeah. Old yeah.
1: Town Road. This is uh this is the jam of the summer.
2: Your your kid is if really you're under into 14. That. Yeah. If you're under fourteen. It's well, she's under ten. And yeah. she's so it's it's a, a lot of young kids are really into this song. Yeah, yeah. We should and say it's a good song. It just doesn't make for good podcasting. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, call Adam if you got any any
1: leads on studios.
2: Yeah, or or remixes on little non-sex. 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot com. We also got that secret line info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot com.
1: Secret X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have a good week, guys.
2: Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible.
1: We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakwood.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakwood.com slash join type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to Oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. The Five Wire is brought to you by Sea and Sky, a blue sky by Boza Properties community
2: in the heart of Squamish.
1: Sea and Sky is an expansive 53 acre master plan community that combines adventure and access with over two acres of green space, two kilometer of trails connected to the larger Squamish network, a pedestrian bridge that connects you to downtown Squamish and the 17,000 square foot amenity center.
2: What's really exciting is Sea and Sky's Parkside Homes, a limited collection of move-in ready four bedroom townhomes with panoramic views of Howe sound and front door access to Sea and Sky's Shoreline Community Park.
1: Each of these homes has an exclusive package of upgrades, including Mila and Bosch kitchen appliances, zoned air conditioning, new heat and select bathrooms, durable wide plank laminate flooring, and ground floor entrances.
2: This is the first time Sea and Sky is offering move-in ready townhomes coming this summer. Register at hellosquamish.com to learn more.